Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, good to be with you in the Word this morning. Uh, if you will, let's just give some love to the Ventura and Carpinteria campus this morning. And turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, For those of you that are visiting with us, we have been going through a a series through Ephesians chapter 3 called Don't Lose Heart. We're getting that from verse 13 where Paul bookends uh, that first half of Ephesians chapter 3. With the exhortation, do not lose heart because of my suffering. And so it acts as a bookend for verses 2 through 12. Uh, Paul gives us reasons for why we should be comforted. And this is going to be one of those reasons. Verse 10. And just to kind of complete that whole paragraph, let's just start reading in, starting in verse 8. Paul says, this grace was given to me. The least of all the saints to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah. And to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here's our verse. This is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. For those of us that find ourselves stumbling along the path, Lord, we pray that you would shine the light of your word across it. You spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and described your word as a hammer that shatters the rock. Pray that this morning you would shatter the rock of fear and complacency and apathy and religion. And I pray that you would use the word of God to shine a light across the face of Jesus Christ and that by your Holy Spirit we would see him in alluring in a salvific, in a wonderful way. That in doing so, that by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the open word of God, you would cause rebels to turn into worshipers. You would cause the blind to see. You would cause the grief to find supernatural joy. And you would give those of us that are apathetic to find something greater to live for in this world. You are that reason, Lord. Show yourself today in this little gym, in the warehouse in Carpinteria, in that building in Ventura. Show yourself to your church. I want you to be the only thing that we see. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um. Some time ago when I had gone to visit New York City with my my wife, Brianna, we had uh, this aspiration to go to the symphony. We wanted to see the the fine music of the city, and so we saved our money uh, for many months to buy tickets in the nosebleed section. Um, And so for the first time, we 
We got to taste a little bit of a symphony. I'd never been to a symphony before in my life. And so we, we bought tickets for the New York Philharmonic. And that particular weekend, I remember going into the nosebleed sections and beforehand, just because I knew it was a big deal, I wanted to do a little bit of homework about what I was, what I was about to listen to. I didn't want, want it to escape my, my shallow thinking as it would have. So I looked up Wikipedia and looked up Tchaikovsky, which we were listening to, and uh, the band and the, the, the piece and the movement that he was going through and the history behind it and saw that this composer had gone through all of this inner turmoil and this identity crisis and this, this particular piece that he had written came out of all of this emotion. And, uh, I think it was nine days after that piece premiered, Tchaikovsky died. And so going into this piece, I, going into the symphony, I, I knew it wasn't, I knew it was, it was quite a bit more than just a rock and roll show or some violins doing their thing. There was all this history, all this emotion, this story that Tchaikovsky wanted to put on display to anybody who would hear. And so having that in mind, Brianna and I sat in our seats and began to just soak in uh, what was happening, and as the band began to the band, the the orchestra began to take take the stage, I began to look at look at look at them, and there were almost a hundred people on stage at the New York Philharmonic, and I I began to identify some of them. The first was the upright bass, yeah, rockabilly, yeah. and then to the to the right of the upright bass was a violin player, and then another violin player, and then fifty more violin players, and. And then in the back row, which was much harder to see, were the strange instruments. There was this guy who, it seemed like he had these mallets and he was hitting like a, a radiator or something. And I don't know what it was. And then to his right was a guy who, who was just standing there. And, and during the music, he would just stand there and he wouldn't do anything. Now, he wasn't disengaged from the music. He was actually very engaged. He had, he had to watch the score and, and know where he was at in the middle of the score. But for 10, 20 minutes, this man just sat there until the end of the piece. And something clicked as he was reading the score. And he got excited. And his eyes began to light up. And this sense of euphoria just began to show in his face. And he grabbed in front of him two brass cymbals. And he pulled them up. And he didn't do anything. And as the music began to, to reach this, this consummation, this climax, he, he began to, to almost shake with, with fervor and excitement until that moment, that, that climax of the, the song. He just began to smash them together and almost hopping as he did it. And his eyes lit up and the smile uh, hit his face and he just put everything into it. And then within seconds it was done and he placed the brass down on the table before him and assumed his his position. And that was the guy that I, I watched the entire time. I was fascinated by him. And we would just watch these, these characters, a hundred musicians, um, who were great to watch, but ultimately it was, it was the ingenuity and the beauty and the wisdom of the late composer that got the most recognition. And everybody knew that. The first violinist knew that. They were there to bring weight to Tchaikovsky. 
And when we read this verse in verse 10, what this verse is setting up for us is a cosmic stage. It's setting up a cosmic stage and it is the ingenuity and the wisdom and the mystery of an invisible composer, a playwright, an author, who claims to be in control of the stage, the stage being the universe in which we reside. God is in control of a cosmic stage where we find ourselves living and breathing. And specifically, Paul tells us in verse 10 that it's God's multifaceted wisdom being made known on this universal stage. A, a moment about this multifaceted wisdom. This wisdom, it's a little bit different than wisdom than you and I would describe of ourselves. There's some, some things that are alike in God's wisdom and ours, but there's other things that separate. So when we practice wisdom, we are attempting to make the best decisions according to what we know at hand. But when God practices wisdom, he is making decisions that he knows will be perfect. One scholar, uh, Dr. Grudem, put wisdom, uh, God's wisdom in, in, in this wording. God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. This definition goes beyond the idea of God knowing all things and specifies that God's decisions about what he will do are always wise decisions. Prophet Isaiah would speak of this in Isaiah chapter 46 where he said that God knows the beginning from the end because he, in a sense, authors the beginning and the end. And yet Paul doesn't stop there with the wisdom of God, which is too much to describe already, but Paul begins to unravel and, and just seek the, the depths of his Greek vocabulary to describe this wisdom. He uses a word, uh, in, in some of your translations, it may come across as manifold or multivariegated or multifaceted. And he describes the wisdom of God as being multifaceted. Think of a, think of a diamond, you know, on those late night cheesy infomercial channels that just spinning around and there's this light and there's this, you know, 30 minutes to bite the best deal of your life. But you see this diamond swirling around on this table or perhaps you went into a jewelry store and they show you this beautiful diamond. They set it on black velvet and they shine lights all around it. And as they spin it before your eyes, you see different colors gleaming from this, this jewel. You see different ways that it shines. Now you're not looking at different diamonds. You're looking at different facets in one diamond. And Paul is using this word to describe the wisdom and the power and the plan of God Almighty. And we see some of it come to the surface in Ephesians chapter 3. We see one facet. We saw this last week when we peeked ahead to verse 11 where he says, this, all of this is in accordance with God's eternal purpose accomplished in the Messiah, Jesus our Lord. We spoke of how God's eternal purpose from Genesis to Revelation is to create out of people, to create out of his creation a family and a home for himself to dwell in. We saw that in uh, chapter 2, verse 22. He wanted to build together for uh, God's spirit to dwell in. And how his eternal purpose involved a marriage between the church, the, the people of God and his, his son, Jesus Christ. And yet when you begin to turn the multifaceted diamond of God's wisdom around, you see other things come to the surface. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, verse 10, 
God's purpose was to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. So God wanting to reconcile, wanting to bring things that are broken, things that are sinful, things that are rebellious, back together under subjection to his son. And so you're not looking at two or a bunch of different scattered purposes of God, but rather like a diamond, you're seeing one jewel, different facets coming together. God wanting to bring everything, reconcile everything under the kingship of his dear beloved son and in doing so, causing his spirit to dwell in what has been reconciled. It all comes together and it's like a jewel spinning on black velvet. And Paul is utterly baffled. Now, if you're reading this, you perhaps are thinking, well, that just sounds very romantic. God making everything new, bride, dwelling, blah, 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 coming together. But if you were honest with yourself and you looked at the world and its condition today, you would say, but things are not together. In fact, I don't even need to leave this church to look at relationships to see that things are not together. I see what the plan and the purpose of God is in bringing things together, but I also see tangible forms of things not being together. I see divorce. I see gossip. I see racism. I see war. I see genocide. I see trafficking. I see grief. I see betrayal. I see distrust, and the list goes on and on and on and on. So I see what you're saying, Apostle Paul. I see this revelation that God has given you, and I see the heart of God to bring things together, but I do not see things being brought together. And it would seem in the face of all of these different problems that evil itself is multifaceted, that it might take different in various forms there's different pains there's different things that hurt people that would gather in a room like this but ultimately it's the same problem things are not coming together there is no reconciliation and so the Christian is faced with an enigma I see the purpose of God that God desires and his eternal purpose is to bring things together in the Messiah and to dwell in people But for the Christian, our question to be answered is how will the Father reconcile everything under heaven? How will that happen right now? How will God create for himself a bride and a home and a family out of all of this chaos? And God's answer is such that it baffles the audience that is watching. God's answer is nothing that humanity would ever expect, and it is so far beyond anything anyone would ever expect that we're told in verse 10 that it baffles the audience that is looking on. Speaking of the audience, who is it? Well, let's read it. This is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heaven. Now, these aren't rulers and authorities like you would normally think of it. It's not speaking of legislators or Caesars or emperors or kings or presidents or city councilmen. Paul uses this phrase, rulers and authorities, 
two other times in Ephesians. I want to show you one. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to chapter 6, verse 10. Can't wait to get to this one. He says, finally, listen to what he says. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. Okay, there's one, one clue. Verse 12, for our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against, here's the phrase, it is against rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. What is Paul saying when he refers to rulers and authorities? He's speaking about those that exist. What does he say in verse 3? In the heavens. He is referring to an otherworldly power, an unhuman power. He's speaking about angels and demons very plainly. Now this is a problem for a lot of people. It's a problem for some Christians. It's hard for us in this age of modernity, in our age of science, in our age of rationalism to think in anything supernatural, which is really strange, right? Because even if you fall that way, you at least believe in God. But you don't believe in demons. Paul believes in demons. German New Testament scholar Rudolf Bultmann was notorious for emphatically denying the existence of a supernatural world with angels and demons. And he fought to bring out the mythology, as he called it, in the New Testament so that it can become more palatable to modern people. But I want to ask you, any of you that tend to veer that way, do you really, be honest with yourself, do you really believe that all the evils in the world really happen because of you and me? And we, we do a lot of silly things, but all the evils and all the atrocities are a result of just a few bad apples? Now, not everything in the world happens because of demons. Don't give them too much credit. Some things that happen that are bad are because of our own sin, our own selfishness. Some things happen that are bad because of the fall that we see in Genesis 3. But many evil things happen because of what Paul says, that there is a spiritual realm and there are demons in that spiritual realm. And we're not to be caught unaware of that. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, turn to, or hopefully you're already there, but in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 2, he goes on to say, and he actually looks at people who are dead in their sins, and he says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. Listen to this. According to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. So he actually attributes all evil to the work of a madman, if you can even call him that, the Lord over the spiritual realm, Satan and his demons. C.S. Lewis would once comment, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Paul neither disbelieves in their existence nor is he obsessed about them. Rather, we could think of him as being humored. He believes in their existence and he knows their lot. Christians 
believe in the existence of angels and demons, and yet we also recognize that this, especially in verse 10, is not a battle between good and evil. It's not like God and Satan are duking it out, and hopefully God will win because we're on his side. There is no battle. There is only a show. There is no battle. There is only a show, and God is showing off. That's the story of verse 10. And on the stage of history, God's answer is bewildering the audience. The audience is the angels and demons. God has created a theater made up of the universe. And he has set angels and demons to be baffled by what he's about to unravel. This thing that Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 2, God's hidden mystery, God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. It's that hidden facet of the diamond that is now in Paul being exposed for the first time. And angels' jaws are dropping in wonder. And that mystery, by the way, is how God will accomplish his eternal purpose. How will he make beauty out of the chaos? How will he bring natural-born enemies together? How will he create all things to be new? How will he subject everything to the kingship of his son? Look with me in chapter 3. Paul hints at the mystery in verse 3. The mystery was made known to me by revelation. In verse 4, he starts to describe it as having to do with the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In verse 5, he says, it is now here being revealed. And there in verse 6, he lays it out in all of its simplicity. What is the mystery? What is the wisdom of God? The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Working backwards, let me put it this way. Through Christ, Gentiles are made members of the same family. That is the gospel. Now it's more than just two people groups getting along. It's speaking of the wisdom of God being unraveled in history. And it speaks of a plan that nobody thought was possible. That no one, no one would ever think to do it quite this way. We would think of uh, using our kings and using our wars and using our power and using our rhetoric and using our our, our strength and using our our wisdom and our knowledge to get ahead in this life. We would think of using our self-righteousness to be accepted by God. We would think of sending a king into battle. We would think of ascending the stairs to heaven in order to get ahead. And God turns all of that on his head and in verse 6 says that the unrighteous Gentile is accepted by the sheer grace of God and in doing so turns the kingdom of humanity on its head and says I will do it a different way. And that's why it's a mystery. Nobody would ever think to do it this way. Where the king of glory steps off his throne and he takes the route of shame in order to win the world. Where the king, instead of going to the throne, goes to the cross. Where the God of glory takes on the shame of humanity. Where the God of omniscience and all power and all wisdom and all knowledge puts on flesh and dwells among sinners and takes on their sin and dies on the cross. 
He wins the world through shame. He wins the victory through a loss. He does everything backwards. And Peter would begin to describe in his own euphoria in 1 Peter chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, he tells his disciples. The prophets who prophesied about that grace that would come to you. We searched and we carefully investigated from Genesis to Revelation. And they inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the messianic sufferings and the glories that would follow. He said the prophets were trying to figure out how's God going to do it? What is the stage going to look like? How is he going to save the world? How is he going to do un- undo all of this mess? And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And angels desire to look into these things. On the cosmic stage of the universe with God doing his thing. Angels are literally on the edge of their seats trying to figure out how God is going to make sense out of these rebellious humans. God is the author. The universe is the theater in which he is showing himself off. The angels and the demons are the audience gawking. But here's the twist. God is showing off his mystery and his plan through the church. Verse 10. This is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heaven. God's main character on the stage is the supernatural community, the body of Christ. And this seems very bizarre. Because if I were God, thank God I'm not, you know, I would, my first go-to to to start building my cast would be Michael the Archangel. He's bad. Maybe Gabriel. He's loud. Bad and loud. God chooses the very same hoodlums that he had to send his son to die for. He uses them as the cast to declare his glory to the angels and demons in the spiritual realm. It's almost nonsensical. God chooses to use the rebels of the earth for his own glory. <laughs> God wants to show off his grace in the foolishness of the people that he saved. This is what Paul was describing to the Corinthian church, by the way, which was a very foolish church. They were doing all the wrong things. And Paul said to them, brothers, consider your calling. And he would say the same to you, reality. Consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you came from noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one can boast in his presence. On the universal stage, there is only one hero, Jesus Christ. But it is from him that you are in Jesus Christ who became for you wisdom 
Jesus is wisdom personified. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. In order that, listen to this, as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. God has so designed the stage so that everybody involved will just be quiet and be in awe. Nobody who gets salvation will be able to boast in anything that they've brought to the table. And it's not just, Paul doesn't even stop there. It's not just that it's foolish people that God redeems. He goes on in verse 21 to say, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. Foolish people and a foolish message. We ain't got nothing to bring to the table. We're like a brass playing cymbal player just walking around hitting things. We've got nothing. And God glories in that. Because at the end of the day, when we stand before the Lord God Almighty, we will have nothing to brag in ourselves. We will cast down our crowns before the Lord of God. Foolish characters and a foolish message. Like a cymbal player who has nothing to bring to the table but a bunch of cymbals. And yet who gladly gives his music to express the beauty and the wisdom and the ingenuity of a great composer. We bring the attention to the work of the composer. Now, if we could take the glory of this text and apply it to our identity and to our life, it would change everything. To understand that in this, God's wise mystery is not for a bunch of individuals to do their own thing, but for a bunch of individuals to be brought together into a, into a, a, a community where the Spirit of God dwells. God's wise mystery is with the church, not with a bunch of lone rangers. The church is the primary instrument of God for his eternal purpose. So we should be serious about gathering together. We should be serious about scattering on Monday because God is. The entire stage is set up for it. Now, through the church, when Paul says it's through the church that the rulers and authorities will see the manifest wisdom of God, he is not saying through the church does not mean through the pastor's and this is what some of you think. Well, this is a great text. Well, go for it. Now, preach harder or something. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10 and 12. Paul would say, The one who is descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers for the training of the saints in what? The work of the ministry. If I were to ask you a question, who would you consider to be a minister? What would you say? Eh, you are. Paul would say, no, you are. And I am too. And all of us are. In different facets and in different ways. You my brother and sister, are called and mandated by God to get out of the bleachers where the angels are seat buckled in and to get on the stage where God's plan is being unraveled. Now we're not called by God 
to do anything about demons and angels. He's not saying, I need you to make known by speaking to demons and angels or getting in a fight with it. No, there's none of that. God is proclaiming his wisdom to demons and angels. What does he call us to do? Let us be vessels that are making his grace known. And Paul gives us a hint about what that would look like in the church because verse 10 is actually tied into all of chapter 3, starting in verse 4, this mystery. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight. So the way the wisdom is being made known in the heavens is by this understanding of the insight of this mystery. He would say this later in verse 9, look at verse 9, where the shedding of light on the mystery is, is being brought to fruition. So, demons and angels are understanding and being baffled by the plan of God when humans understand the gospel. He doesn't stop there. Look at verse 8. This grace was given to me, the least of the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah. So when the gospel of grace is being spoken, proclaimed, explained, so that people can understand, then the stage is being set and people Uh, excuse me, angels and demons are being bewildered by the plan of God. But of course, all of this ties into chapter 1, verse 10, where everything is being brought together. Everything is actualized in this reconciling work of God. So this is what it means. You want to know how to be a part of being making known the multifaceted wisdom of God? You are proclaiming, you are understanding, you are helping other people to understand, and you are actualizing the implications of the gospel of grace everywhere you happen to be, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know what that looks like? Just start to daydream with me for a little bit. You go to work. You clock in, you show up, you talk to your boss who hates you, who doesn't respect you, who you can't stand, and you choose to honor this boss by grace. You choose to be faithful at your job. You choose to be a man and a woman of integrity. You choose to pour into it as much as you possibly can and to honor your employers. Why? Because they're not your actual employer. Christ Jesus is you begin to actualize the grace of God because even though your boss doesn't deserve it, you're treating them not according to the golden rule, but according to the rule of grace. Not according to, I, I, I will treat you according to how I want to be treated, but what does grace say? I will treat you according to how Christ has treated me. You start to do that in your marriage with your spouse, loving your spouse more than you love yourself. You put their needs ahead of your own. You are living according to grace. You give explanation for why you would do all of this bizarre behavior. People are exposed to the grace and the mystery of God. And this seems so trite. It seems so simple. All I'm doing is clocking in. All I'm going, uh, doing is coming to my, my kid's soccer game, my kid's hockey or whatever game. Uh, it doesn't seem like I'm doing a whole lot. And yet angels and demons are around the stage, baffled that humans who are rebels are being reconciled and you are ministers of reconciliation. Or there's another option. Towards the end of the very last movement, the, the, the climax of Tchaikovsky's wonderful piece, unlike other 
Unlike other uh, movements which usually get louder and more intense as it ends, his actually works backwards and so it gets quieter as it ends, kind of giving a, a, a glimpse into his, his nerve-wracked heart. And as the last movement was beginning to, beginning to draw to a close, people began to sit on the edge of their seats waiting for it and it got so quiet with the violins playing that you could hear a pin drop and... In the last few minutes of that closing movement, I heard it. The notorious, infamous sound of an iPhone going off. (laughs) Now, in the New York Philharmonic, the way that the building is designed, you can hear someone sniff from across the room. So imagine that stupid ring. It was a high school student to my left. They had been text messaging the entire time. Brothers and sisters, God is expanding his kingdom and building his church and doing what he wants and all that he wants to do is good and it will be done. And you have two options. You can be the symbol player. You can step out on stage and make noise for the glory of God and do what he has called you to do and be faithful or you can be the cell phone guy. Friends, do not be caught in these days with your face down. Of all the places to find that temptation, would it not be on the coastland of California where we are distraught and distracted by so many different things? Do not be caught in these last days with your face down. Do not be caught buried in the busyness of life, overwhelmed by the consumerism of this day. Do not let your guard down. Do not live for your own life. There is a cosmic display going on all around you where spiritual rulers are vying for each other, for the souls of men and women, right where you live. And yet, in that theater, God Almighty declares by his sovereign power and wisdom to all authorities that he is in charge and he shuts the mouths of demons by the unmasking of a mysterious and beautiful and powerful gospel where rebels who didn't deserve it are somehow brought into the family of God. Even now, demons and angels are in awe that some of you received grace and know Jesus Christ as your Lord, but some of you do not know him in that way. I pray that tonight as we worship, you would consider a different way. That even now as the Holy Spirit is shining a light into your heart, revealing that you are indeed a rebel, you will repent of your sins and come to saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. If that's you, come get some prayer. Get some hands laid on you today by the prayer teams to the left and to the right here in SB Ventura Carpinteria Campus. God is bringing all things together and he is baffling even the angels. And perhaps Satan's greatest strategy in all of this, his his one default go-to, is to somehow convince and fool all of us to think that there is no such story. Do not be fooled. The stage is set. The curtain is rising. Your move. Heavenly Father, pray in the name of Jesus. That as we worship your holy name, 
God, you would make your glory to set itself in this building and in our church. That as you set the stage, even in our little community, that your glory would take center stage. That, f- that no man, no flesh, no woman, no agenda, no uh, strategy, no planning would take the forefront. But that God, you would step down in the midst of all of us and declare the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ who makes all things new. And I pray desperately, Lord, for my family and for myself that you know our hearts altogether too well, that we are easily distracted and we are easily pulled into the, the storms of life and the trinkets of life, cheap as they may be. And we're asking that you would take off any blinders that exist and you would show us your glory today. Show us all that is happening all around us and get us to engage as the church you designed us to be. Let us repent of lesser things and fall in love with the God of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.